Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York City, I'm really pleased to say, is Nouriel Roubini, Roubini Macro Associates Chairman and NYU Stern School of Business Professor. Nouriel, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Jonathan. Instead of a bunch of fancy NYU economics, I want to talk about somebody listening to this in Iowa or Oklahoma, or maybe it's lumber up in Montana or Washington State, John, somewhere else, you know, like Derry in Wisconsin, mm. whatever. We got this mumbo-jumbo trade stuff, yep. and it's everybody in suits and ties and fancy white shirts like you're wearing. Forget about it. What does that tariff mean for producers in services and goods, not in three zip codes in New York, not in two zip codes in Washington? Well, it means two things. One is that any farmer selling soybeans or other products to China is going to face now massive tariffs, and therefore they're starting to hurt and complain. And two, as a consumer, think of it. If you impose a 25% tariff on 500 billion of imports from China, that's like tax of $125 billion a year on the U.S. consumer. It's a massive tax increase. 125 billion. So it hurts the consumer, it hurts the producer, and it makes the U.S. economy worse off. It's a disaster. When the president says China's paying that tax, is that a campaign message? Do you think the consumers understand? No, but John, you hit it directly. Do you think the consumers understand that they are the individuals paying this? Well, he's saying China is paying the tax in the same way we say that Mexico is going to pay for the wall. That's nonsense because once you impose that tax, what's going to happen is that the price of imported goods from China to the United States is going to go up mostly by the amount of the tax. Now, it could go up by less than the amount of the tax if the Chinese cut down the dollar price of their goods, and there'll be some impact of that. But most of the impact of a tariff is imposed on the importers. This is the U.S. consumer. It's as simple as that. It's $125 billion tax on the U.S. consumer, on the U.S. household, and it's the most regressive tax of all because those consumer goods are bought from China that you buy at Walmart that are cheap goods that allow you to have per capita income rising and your right. present power. So okay. it's a regressive tax. So not only is it tax, but it's a regressive okay. tax. It's the most regressive tax of all, okay. a tariff. Translate this for John Farrow of the Midlands. Is the Midlands, is that where, where That would were? be accurate. The middle, is yeah. that accurate? The, the Lake Country? No, that's further north. Keep uh, going. That's over here. That's my Lake Superior. Yeah. Um, but, but if you look at the Midlands of England, you go back to the Corn Laws. Is, is President Trump dragging the Corn Laws of England, uh, Farrow's great-great-grandfather, are you dragging the corn laws into the 21st century? Is that all we're doing? Well, effectively, it's the same thing. It's a protectionist. That protectionist might benefit at the margin some producers in the import computing sectors, but that's a very small number of people, but it hurts all consumers. Right. So the same workers as consumers are worse off, and anyone who is in an export-producing business, their jobs, their income, their profit are right. going to go down. So you're making worse off consumers and exporters for the benefit of a very small number of uh, essentially producers. But, and that would be like Lord Farrell back in the 17th century, yeah. John. 
There wasn't a Lord Pharaoh. <laughs> he was probably in Sicily. The, the, the costs are huge. You know, like, you know, a few years ago, we imposed the taxes on tires imported by China. was estimated that the yeah. cost for every job that was saved in the tire industry was a million dollars. I mean, you can just give a subsidy to those workers and not impose that tax on all the consumers. So it's a tax that is totally distorted. Nouriel, final question. It's an important one. The Chinese behavior hasn't changed towards trade. It needs to change. That's an overwhelming consensus among economists that it needs to change. The objective of this administration is to get the Chinese to change. You're saying this is the wrong way. What's the right way? Well, it's the wrong way because they're going to retaliate. They cannot lose face. You want to control the rise of the power of China. The right way is to do it multilaterally, not just alone, but with Europe, Japan, and others who have complained about China, Mm -hmm. and do it in a way that you start negotiation and you put pressure on them. If you start unilateral tariffs, they're going to retaliate. And yes, they have a limit to how much they can retaliate on goods, but they can impose massive restrictions on hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign direct investment by Apple, GM, and hundreds of business they've done business well, in China. So they're going to hurt. They let their currency now right. weaken by 8%, and they could even eventually have the nuclear okay. option of dumping U.S. Treasury. So they have a wide okay. variety of options, and they take the long-term view. They don't have election in three months. Nor- so they can wait and play it out over the next two decades. Our nuclear option is the joy of having you here from Milan. And of course with John Farrell's love for AC Milan we go out this segment with the AC Milan fight song oh, no. for Farrell. You are not going to... Inter. Nouriel is not going to come back now. Interista for life. Oh that is beautiful. Thank you Tom King. For all the months of pain this makes up for it. I appreciate that. <laughs> To a, a more learned view here on the financial system that the U.S. confronts right now in emerging markets. Stephanie Siegel out of Chapel Hill and the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies does this, looking sort of broader and deeper, where Rubini is looking at more of the crisis dynamics and the actual political dynamics. How about just where are we in finance? Stephanie, good morning. Stephanie Siegel, and I love your idea of first best responses. Do they need the International Monetary Fund to make first best response, or is there a new EM responsibility? Well, first off, good morning. It's nice to be with you. Um, I think the, the point of the piece I think that you were referring to was to differentiate between countries that are facing just fundamental economic vulnerabilities and um, those countries that could potentially get swept up in a broader EM contagion. And the first best response that I was referring to was, first off, just stronger, more fundamental policies that address some of the economic imbalances, but then also recognizing that we're going into a period of vulnerability for EMs, we're going into a period of... um, of interest rate hikes and dollar strengthening, and that leaves EMs more vulnerable. Um, and so if you're in a world where financing for those EMs starts to dry up, right. um, what are the options that those countries have? And what's um, so, but what's, what's so unique, uh, unique here, Dr. Siegel, is the idea of dollarization. That's a new word in that 
I'm sure we had it in 92, 98. We had it in 2007. But am I right that the dollarization, the dollar-denominated effect of all this debt on EM is dramatically different this time? Um, I don't know if I would say that it's dramatically different. So what is different this time? So we've had a decade of very low global interest rates. Um, that has actually encouraged a great deal of borrowing, including from non-financial corporates. And a lot of that emerging market borrowing by those corporates has been in foreign currency, in dollars. So as the dollar is strengthening, it becomes that much harder for those EMs to repay those debts. And that's, that's part of the phenomenon right now that's driving some of the broader EM weakness apart from just the pure fundamentals. Stephanie, what's the dominant channel for contagion? Um, that is an excellent question. I mean, I think you would first look at what are the real economic linkages between some of the vulnerable EMs. So thinking here in terms of, of just pure trade and those trade linkages, I think most people think that the EMs that are under the most stress right now, that their economic linkages to the rest of the world are, are manageable. And so then you look to financial linkages. So are there banks and other investors that have exposure to the, those EMs? Um, and I think a lot of people feel like those um, exposures are also manageable in part because of the cleanup that took place after the global financial crisis. Um, the third area, and this is kind of the, the unknown right now, is just the broader risk sentiment um, and how investors feel about the overall environment. Yeah. And I think that's where you start to get into um, what are what are some of the unknowns right now. And, and first and foremost, in a lot of people's mind is where does this trade war between the U.S. and China um, end up? And are we looking at something that could potentially be resolved quickly? Or are we looking at something that could be much more protracted and have much um, broader impacts um, beyond just the U.S. and China. Stephanie, investors look at those three things that you just described. They look at those three things and they conclude that the United States will be unaffected. It will be insulated. Is that your conclusion as well, or do you look at it differently? Um, I, I look at it differently in the sense that I, I think if this is kind of a near-term phenomenon, it um, it is certainly manageable. And in particular, if the U.S. <clears throat> knows what it is that it's asking of China, and they can actually enter into a, a uh, negotiation where each side can make some progress, then, then you're looking at a, yeah. a quicker resolution. I think where people get concerned, and I agree with this, is if we're looking at a much broader trend toward um, deliberalization and deglobalization, right. and what does that mean for the global outlook. Um, and there, I think it's a much bleaker story. And what's so interesting here is the overlay, which we heard a little bit from Lawrence Kudlow yesterday at the Economic Club of New York, and we heard it a lot, Stephanie Siegel from Norio Rabini an hour ago, is the overlay of U.S. fiscal policy. We talk about Chairman Powell as central banker to the world. Is our fiscal deficit the fiscal impulse to the EM world? Right, and so you're, are you uh, kind of asking what the implications are for our fiscal Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're at 1.3, 1.4 chronic deficit. We get some form of slowdown. We go out to 1.8, 2 trillion deficit. How does that affect Ecuador? How does that affect Indonesia? Yeah, and, and I think there's um, there are a couple of channels. Again, I think, one, this immediate fiscal impulse that we're seeing, the fact that growth is much higher in the U.S. as a result of this fiscal stimulus, um, on the one hand, because of those real linkages, that's actually positive 
for the global economy, except it also presents a very large financing need. And so in this environment where you've got higher interest rates in the U.S. and dollar strength and an additional financing need, are we, the United States, then pulling financing away from the rest of the world? Um, So that poses a risk to EMs. And then a risk to EMs um, and to ourselves, frankly, is what happens after this kind of sugar high of fiscal stimulus wears off. Um, And that, I think, is a concern for everybody. It's definitely the first concern. It's a concern that the central bank governor of India raised several months ago, that the Treasury, together with the balance sheet roll-off at the Fed, was just going to suck up dollar liquidity from EM. Is that playing out already? That, I think, is is hard to tell. I mean, we have already seen... um, outflows from EMs um, in, uh, in the first half of the year. So I, I think, you know, there are a couple of drivers behind that is um, increased demand from the United States and specifically for U.S. Treasuries. Um, is, that, um, is that a factor playing into it? I think so. Stephanie Sigalvin, great to catch up with you. Yeah, thank um, you so much. CSIS Deputy Director and uh, Senior Fellow. So let's talk to Jane Foley, joining us out of the Global Capital Authority Exchange in London, Rabobank's senior currency analyst. Jane, let's get to the big debate. It's the US dollar debate and an unloved rally through the front half of this year. What's your base case now, Jane? Well, we still think uh, that you'd be better off holding long dollars. I mean, I think what we've probably seen is some position adjustment. Like you mentioned, that rally in the dollar has, has gone a long way. But there has been, I know, a shift perhaps in some of the uh, factors that the market is talking about, a shift perhaps in, in concerns about uh, where uh, U.S. growth is going to go on the back of uh, trade, <coughs> excuse me, trade uh, wars, uh, a new debate about uh, growth potentially being hit there, and also some concerns about uh, slowing or, or, or capped inflation potential. Also in, in the U.S., we had softer data on that front last week. So I think this is um, profit-taking. I still think that uh, emerging markets are going to be vulnerable in the wake of the pressure on, on China. And and I do think that the uh, the long-dollar positions will win through. But I do think right now we are seeing some position adjustment. What do you think, Jane, right now is the dominant concern for EMFX, the dominant concern? And where is it coming from? Most people on a morning like this morning might point to trade. Kit Jukes is calling the trade situation Washington water torture, just this drip, drip of tariff news together with Fed hikes. What do you look at? Well, I, I think this has been the theme all year, but I think what's different is the emphasis. If you go back to the beginning of the year, there, there was a lot of optimism that the, the trade um, situation would brush over, that the it would be a short-run thing, there would be a compromise, and by now we've more or less have forgotten about it. But I think right now you know, many more commentators are, are coming to recognize that this could really be a drawn-out process. And I think that's the change. That's what's really getting under the market skin. And I think if we look to emerging markets, well, they're obviously on the front line. Of a, of a fall away in, in market confidence. And we've seen uh, capital outflow from emerging markets really from the beginning of, of the year, at least since the spring. But it wasn't until maybe the, the summer that this became a much broader uh, effect, that this began to really rattle confidence in, in a much bigger way. But I do think that, that the trade war thing is, is, is very much in, in the front line. We just don't know how much yeah. it's going to slow Chinese growth. We don't know how much it's going to knock on to other economies. Jane, I just looked at the euro-dollar volatility surface and it's fairly uh, symmetrical there doesn't seem to be a one-way bet where is the one-way bet that you can play against right now is it weak yen and you push against that 
Well, no, I think the, I think the yen is a, is a really confusing one, at, at least uh, you know if you're looking <coughs> in on the foreign exchange market this year, because you, you've seen this sell-off in emerging markets this year, and, and many people might be forgiven for thinking, well, that means, of course, the yen is the safe haven currency. Well, in that case, it should be really quite strong. But I think what's happened is that the market's looked at the higher interest rates coming out or coming through from the Federal Reserve. It's looking at the strong growth story in, in the U.S. Actually, you know, many uh, Japanese investors, particularly perhaps, have thought, well, actually, I think I'd rather put my money in, in the dollar, pick up a little bit of yield, and therefore you've seen the yen perhaps not as, as, as strong as, as many people might have expected given the sell-off in emerging markets. So interest rate differentials are really coming through. I think the days when the yen really benefits is when we have some sort of shock, some sort of un- unforeseen bad news, and we have this knee-jerk back into the yen. But as long as the interest rate differentials are seen to be boosting the dollar, I think it's going to be difficult for um, uh, to see the yen pick up too much ground against the US dollar. Well, Jane, if rate differentials are playing into the dollar-yen cross, why is it not playing into the euro-dollar cross? Because euro-dollar is out to 117. What's it doing up there with rate differentials heavily skewed in the dollar's favour? Well, you're right. I mean, again, if we look back into maybe the middle of August, we had uh, you know lows around about 113, and suddenly we're back in in in, um, in the euro's favour. Again, I think there is some position adjustment here. I think the sell-off in in the euro um, was probably a little bit too fast um, through the first couple of weeks of August. But I do think that when you have a scenario where the ECB is has signaled really quite clearly that it's got no intention of hiking interest rates at yeah. least through the summer. Of, of next year. When you've got budget issues for, for Italy too, I think the euro might look vulnerable at these levels. What is the number one question your clients are asking you right now? The number one question from UK customers, Irish customers, is still very much about Brexit. And this, of course, has been the same situation for, for two years. It's still a, a huge uh, issue. Um, for sterling, uh, it is, well, you know, should we be buying sterling now? Is there going to be a deal or should we be selling yeah. sterling? Is there going to be no deal? Yeah. It's obviously very, very difficult to Jane, answer that question. But Yeah, John Jane has two goldfish on her desk. One's called Leave and the other's called Remain. She's sitting on the fence. It just goes, <laughs> no, it just, <laughs> and there's a cat. Called Boris. Jane, Jane, you said those in the UK ask about Brexit. Does anyone outside the UK ever ask about Brexit? There, uh, yes, is the answer. Yes, perhaps with not the same sort of intensity, but you know that there's a lot of there's well, perhaps three different options that many investors have had. They could buy sterling, they could sell sterling, or they could just remain on the sidelines. And I do suspect that many investors, if they had the option, have stayed out of it. For those that don't have the option, what's your advice to them? I think they need to tread extremely carefully and, and clearly we've seen sterling recover some ground over the last week or so. There's a little bit more optimism that November could come through. But I think the focus needs to be on the UK government. If, if there is no consensus within the UK government, there's got to be a question mark as to whether or not a trade deal is going to get through. Um, there is, of course, the, the potential for sterling to rally hard if a deal is signed in, in November yeah. or whenever. Yeah. But if that doesn't get through, ratified yeah. through Parliament and Sterling still looks pretty vulnerable. Very quickly here, Jane, what are you uh, watching within this tr- this trade war that we're in? The Chinese have responded. They say they will respond. There's a September 24th date. But what actually is the one perspective or item that you're looking towards? 
Well, I, I think we, I think you're right. I think we need to watch what what China's do. I think it's quite interesting. Also, another factor to watch: U.S. corporates. We've seen some pushback from U.S. corporates over the last few weeks, specifically U.S. farmers. We've got to watch the the, the November um, midterms as well. This could all be interesting. So, don't think there's one particular thing. I think this is a confluence of a lot of different factors coming together. Jane Foley, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Rabobank uh, today. The um, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, this of course is Senator Charles Grassley, Republican of Iowa. Next Monday, he has set aside time to hear from Judge Brett Kavanaugh, of course uh, nominated to the Supreme Court, and to also hear from Christine Blasey Ford, a research psychologist in Northern California, uh, who has accused uh, Judge Kavanaugh of sexual assault. And here to tell us a little bit more about this is our own Bloomberg expert when it comes to the Supreme Court, Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, thank you very much for being with us. Can you explain what this is setting up on Monday? What exactly are we going to kind of be presented with? Well, this is a really rapidly developing story. So uh, what we say now might change completely on Monday. But right now, um, Republican senators have said that they want to give Kavanaugh's accuser uh, a form where she can really air out the complete allegations that she has against uh, Brett Kavanaugh. But then we're also going to hear from Brett Kavanaugh so that, in his words, he can defend his integrity. Now, the president has uh, defended uh, Judge Kavanaugh, correct, calling him an outstanding judge and dismissing as, quote, ridiculous uh, the prospect that Brett Kavanaugh might withdraw his nomination. Is that correct? Well, that's true. But the White House's response has been somewhat surprising. Uh, They do say that they still support Brett Kavanaugh and that uh, they don't intend to pull his nomination. Uh, At the same time, we saw uh, White House advisor Kellyanne Conway come out and say that this woman's (laughs) allegations must be given a full hearing. Um, And so it's kind of a, a... bit of a surprise yeah. given some of the other allegations that we've heard against the president th- himself and the tactics we've seen from right. the White House on those. Uh, but they are standing by Kavanaugh as of now. I, I, I believe that, that the debate of this, and you know, I give credit to Mike Allen, uh, Kimberly, who I thought framed Ms. Conway's intent here, is the Republican calculus on women and on suburban women, the people that, you know, frankly put Mr. Trump over the edge to victory, Uh, in 2016. From where you sit with the Supreme Court tilt, do you think that politics is just all supreme here? It has nothing to do with Mr. Kavanaugh or, 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 you know, the debate at hand and everything to do with the election in November. Well, that's really what Brett Kavanaugh's nomination has been all about, you know, is is for Democrats firing up their base, for Republicans making sure that Kavanaugh is confirmed before the midterm elections. Um, so politics has been, you know, weighing pretty heavily on this nomination from the start. Uh, but now being in the Me Too moment um, and having these allegations come out, of course, this is going to be bigger than just the Supreme Court. Kimberly, do we know anything about how senators on the Judiciary Committee feel about this revelation and we have any update on how they might vote? 
Well, I think how they will vote will have to be seen on after we have the hearing on Monday. Uh, but pretty early on, once the uh, accuser came forward publicly, uh, Senator Jeff Flake, who's on the Judiciary Committee and, of course, a must-have vote for Republicans, um, said that he was not comfortable moving forward with the hearing until they at least heard from her accuser. And I think that's really what put the thumbs on the scale um, for kind of delaying the nomination and pushing it back a little bit. All right. This is going to be a tricky one, and that's why I give it to you. Uh, Not to make light of any of these accusations, but when are these accusations supposedly to have taken place? Well, you know, this is something that Republicans had um, pointed out very early on, is that these accusations took place while both of these individuals were in high school, both under the age of 18. Um, And there there was really a robust and important debate about whether or not that is disqualifying uh, for a Supreme Court nominee. But at this point, it might be a bit beside the point. And that's because Brett Kavanaugh has come out unequivocally against these allegations, saying that they don't matter. And so I think the issue now will be, if you believe this woman um, does Does lying about it disqualify you for a seat on the Supreme Court? And I think that is a much easier question um, than the one about the timing. Nicely answered, Kimberly Robinson. Thank you for a balanced, journalistic approach there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.